why do you think that some of these characters uh, get uh, almost almost like treated as as if they're cartoon characters instead of historical figures? I think part of it might just be that you like to tell the good story. The good story as in we're the good guys and also the good story as in that's that's a very exciting story and one that a kid is going to latch onto and easily remember. And listening to your episode uh, mm-hmm. on The Martian, that it rung straight in my brain. Yeah, when when something's planted there, that is it's a colonized mm-hmm. area. This is a safe place we can settle. Welcome to Talk Agdomy, the podcast dedicated to improving ag literacy around the globe. I'm your host, Brennan Black, and today's episode is a little bit different. Instead of having your average consumer on for, for an episode, I actually have somebody who has experience in a part of agriculture that's not often talked about, more of the research and, and historical side of things. I think it's going to be kind of an interesting one. So before we get started, I'm going to let my, my guest, uh, Matt Hellier, the uh, host of, of his own podcast, kind of plug his own uh, information, kind of give a little bit of background about who he is and where he comes from. Matt, take it away. Alrighty, hey everybody, I'm Matt, as Brendan said, and I am the co-host of ReviewParty.com, the only podcast that looks at internet reviews and then reviews them. I'm not really going to be talking about that at all today. What I am going to be talking about is my senior thesis that I had to do back in college a few years past now, which was all about Johnny Appleseed and his orchards, his trees, and travels across the early American frontier. Uh, by day, I am a GIS analyst. For those who, who don't know the term, GIS is Geographic Information Systems. Fancy word for c- computer map making. And yeah, my thesis, uh, I didn't go the direction that everyone else did in terms of what to analyze. But I think it, it was a richer project for that. Yeah, no, it definitely sounded interesting. You know, when you were describing it to me, that was something that I had uh, heard very little about. And so I was very, very interested in hearing, you know, what you found and, and kind of, you know, what led you to that that decision to write on, on that topic in the first place. Um, before we get started, kind of the essential question I ask all of my guests um, is, what, if any, experience do you have in the agriculture industry? I mean, obviously, with your thesis, you've uh, studied apples quite a bit, but um, what, you know, what other experience or knowledge did you have going into it before you started that, that paper? Well, uh, in my studies in geography, becoming a geo major, which I don't, not a whole lot of people do. No one really sets out to be a geo major. You only take a class and then decide, I actually like this stuff. I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, in some of those classes, I mean, location is everything. We hear that whether it's a business or whether it's a field or, or a city, a civilization. Location determines so much. And particularly in agriculture, you know, what kind of crops are you going to grow? How well are they going to do? Some of the most fascinating things I remember learning were in my remote sensing classes where, whether it's satellites uh, or planes, the sensors that you can load on these things are scanning infrared or imagery, LIDAR, all these different bits of data that you can collect to determine what's going to grow best where based on the topology, based on the drainage that you can analyze from above, and and how LIDAR is can be so accurate as to pick up 
what kind of vegetation is actually there based on the color that's being reflected, based on the shape of the leaf pattern, or you're getting your canopy in different layers of growth. Just, there's all sorts of, of fascinating applications for, for GIS, geography, where it connects to agriculture. So I got, you know, general, a good sense of general. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Kind of, kind of, kind of the gist. Just a, the <laughs> gist of it, where where this all ties together. And I saw that in all my classes, whether it was religion or history, how location plays into so many decisions. And I guess that's that's the big deal. Location plays into so many decisions. Awesome. Yeah, that definitely sounds incredibly interesting. And um, I'm sure I, I don't know. You know, you talked about some of the technology involved in. Uh, and you're working you know, in the geogra- in, in the geographic kind of scanning and, and you know all that kind of stuff. A lot of people are surprised to learn that a lot of that technology is used in agriculture too, but on a smaller scale. We use uh, what's called precision agriculture-based technology, which is used to map out you know what soil is suitable for growing what kind of crops, for you know moisture level content in, in soil, for um, you know we use infrared to detect the uh, presence of insects and bug life and that kind of thing. Um, so it's interesting to hear that you know there's there's industries or not industries, but um, fields of research that are also using those those technologies for similar purposes, especially in, in the geographic kind of uh, sphere of things. Sure, absolutely. I, I can't believe I didn't even mention soil science. That was one of my favorite classes looking at, I, I mentioned drainage, but but the porosity of the soil and pH, as you said, and, and how you can treat soil to make it more conducive to crops or, you know, make it less viable for weeds and and so that the crops that you want are going to pull through and the technology is it's fascinating you can you can have tractors going by a preset path so it's self-driving mm-hmm. tractors if i don't think i'm making no, that not. up i could be making that <laughs> up but i'm pretty sure yeah i see this stuff and maps have power mm-hmm. we all know we've got powerful machines in our pockets and that's not the only places that these powerful, you know, geo, geo-referencing machines are going. They're going all over the place. Yeah, no, definitely. And there's definitely a, uh, uh, not only a market for them, but there's a future for that technology in uh, the more automated versions of agriculture, of, you know, of, of your, you know, your, uh, your, your aspects of, of research, you know, anything involving um, cultivation or, or use of, of land or, you know, mapping out any, anything that technology is, is going to be infinitely useful. And as we kind of progress as a society, as our population grows, as our um, urban development be- begins to, or continues to expand, that technology is going to be vital for us to be able to determine exactly how much land we have left, how much of it we still need to preserve, you know, uh, what, what land is suitable for what kinds of, of crops and, and what land is suitable for environmental protection, um, you know, and just kind of using the best of our resources to to maintain every last inch of of usable land we can for our survival. Yeah, and since you mentioned population growth, that may as well be a nice natural segue into the topic of the thesis, which was not only plotting where I thought Johnny Appleseed traveled based mm-hmm. on research, but since since I study geography, which is a science I had to have some sort of testable theory and and just saying this is where he went wasn't a testable theory. And I had to say, okay, well, 
the theory is going to be that the area is Johnny Appleseed, the real guy traveled, where he planted apples and, and cultivated orchards. Those are areas where I think population growth would have been spurred on quicker than mm. elsewhere. Interesting. And yeah, I coming to that sort of theory, it didn't happen overnight. Uh, as I said, all my classes sort of melded together in my mind, the religion, the the history and the geography. I I loved how often the lines would blur and overlap between various courses I would take. And for whatever reason, I just I fell in love with both history and geography at the same time. And being from the Midwest as I am, I thought it would be great if I could map something like like the extent of the Chicago fire, which it's been done, but I wanted to go a step further and say if I could calculate all the square footage that was lost in buildings, because few people know this, well, not few, but not everyone knows this. After the Chicago fire, all the wreckage was kind of just pushed into Lake Michigan. And where all the museums are in present day Chicago, they're sitting on what used to be the lake and just junk was shoved in the lake and sort of dirt was put on top of it. So even though everything was burned down in the fire, Chicago gained square footage as, as a city footprint. And I thought I'd love to be able to map how much they lost versus how much they gained. And of course, uh, a little bit of research told me, oh, all the records I need were lost in a certain fire. Oh, no. So, yeah, that idea didn't, didn't go anywhere very far. But shortly after that, I thought I love history. Uh, Lewis and Clark, those are, those are American mm -hmm. heroes but it seems like it's been done before. And I don't know where it came about that I just thought, why not Johnny Appleseed? Hmm. And sure enough, some quick research turned out that, yeah, he is a real guy. And for the most part, he did do about what we thought he did. But he was also a lot more interesting and a lot more cunning than most people know, or as most stories would tell. So why don't we kind of, yeah, I mean, that's, I don't know if there's any any more to the uh, you know the buildup of the backstory that you wanted to go over, but it seems like you you establish a pretty good foundation of how you got into this topic, why you started to write this thesis in the first place. Um, mm -hmm. So if there's any more uh, background, then then feel free to give it. But uh, I'm curious about you know what what did your research show? You know what what was so incredible about your findings that, that you wrote a whole thesis about it. Well, the first thing was, yeah, preamble, preamble's out of the way. We'll just get right into the, into the meat of this, the core of the issue, as, as a lot of my, the books that I had to read so cleverly stated. Uh, this Johnny Appleseed was born in 1774, so two years before the American Revolution. And at that time, well, as most American listeners anyway will know, it was just the original 13 colonies. Not a whole lot of people hanging out in the about-to-be-United States, and very little, if anyone, further west of that, just along the eastern mm -hmm. seaboard. But what happened after the Revolutionary War was that the, the Continental Congress, they, it's a new country, we don't have money to pay in it, all these soldiers. What we can do is say, hey, there's a bunch of land over there, if you want it, we'll give it to you. But... Even though free land, in most cases, would be a good deal, free land at that point was also scary, uncharted, untraveled land. And so 
I'll just do a quick history on on Mr. Johnny Appleseed, born John Chapman. I don't know if I said that yet. No. But real name, John Chapman. Uh, his father fought in the Revolutionary War, and and then they moved. He was born in Massachusetts. They moved to, to southern Massachusetts, and his dad got him a job working at a cider mill. In those days, you know, water wasn't always potable. And cider was, because it was alcohol. And it was also used to barter or trade, because if you're not near you know, a hub of activity, you might not see actual real dollars. You might just be mm. trading and bartering all over mm. the place. So the cider industry was huge. And after in... Uh, after apprenticing for the cider mill, he felt like he got a good grasp on the industry and set off on his own. And since there were so many cider mills all over the place, they're pressing these apples to get the cider, but what's left over is the mush and the seeds. So he'd filter the mush and get these seeds, which were essentially a waste product to the to the cider mills, and travel down the the Ohio River through Ohio, through Indiana, even into Illinois and Iowa. He jaunted into to Michigan, in my research, I believe, and West Virginia as well. So that core early American West, planting trees by sapling. He never liked to graft because he was a bit of a, not a bit of a, very devout man. So he didn't even like uh, cutting trees to graft onto to other mm -hmm. trees even though that was an easier way and more sure way to produce apples. But the big thing that people don't know about Johnny Appleseed is that he would, he was sort of a businessman. He would buy this land out west, plant the trees on it, and when settlers came out west, they would see, oh, this is an established area. Something's growing on this that someone cultivated. And listening to your episode uh, mm -hmm. on the Martian, that it rung straight in my brain. Yeah, when... When something's planted there, that is it's a colonized mm -hmm. area. This is a safe place we can settle. So Johnny Appleseed was I one thing I read called him a land baron, which seems a little bit harsh, but it is what he did. He would buy up land cheap, plant apple trees on it, and sell it to settlers who moved out west, and he would keep moving further and further west. And just wash, rinse, repeat. Until he died at seventy, which I think is pretty old for back then. Yeah, no, that's definitely. I mean, the the oldest person we know about we know about back then was Benjamin Franklin. And I think he was in his eighties or nineties, but everyone else was in like yeah. their fifties and sixties when they were dying. So that's that's pretty impressive that he lived that long. It is, and they say he he walked everywhere across the countryside. So maybe there's something to walking that we all <laughs> should take a cue from. You know what? Or just. An apple a day. It could be that. You no, know, I think that he had the. Uh, I think that he had the secret to uh, to immortality at his fingertips. He had apples. So obviously, no doctor would come near him. He was walking every day, and I don't know about you, but I love walking. And whenever I walk, I feel a lot better about myself. Mm, that fresh yes. country air, too. Oh, man. Can't be nope. beat. And, and that was back, you know, before industrialization, so the air was was way cleaner, and it was just like can't imagine that it was that it was anything but peaceful, and. And, you know, he if he's living by himself and just kind of doing his own thing and, and he's not bugging anybody, nobody's bugging him, then, you know, he, I, I can't imagine he was a super stressed out guy all the time. I mean, besides the business aspect of his life. But, I mean, sounds sounds like a pretty nice life to me. Just kind of, you know, going around from place to place, buying up land and selling it and 
just kind of living, doing your thing. Yeah, I, I imagine it was a very liberating experience <laughs> for him. So, I'm, so uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go. Oh no! By all I, means, I was going to. Uh, I don't know if you had if you had more you're going to continue on to. I was just going to uh, elaborate on some of the points that you'd made so far. Uh, feel okay. free. Um, so in terms of your uh, so like like you mentioned uh, my Martian episode, and you you, uh, you kind of brought up the idea that that agriculture that cultivated land is is somewhat equivalent or or has, or is seen as equivalent as uh, like a, the the foundations of a settlement that. You know, agriculture mm-hmm. has this this foundational tie to society. Um, that's that's actually a point that I mentioned uh, briefly in the Martian, but I kind of elaborated on more in another episode. I can't remember what episode that was now. Um, but I talked to somebody. I think it was maybe it wasn't on my podcast. It might have been on somebody else's podcast. Um, but we had discussed the idea that agriculture was the foundational piece of society, and that society is is only where it is because of agriculture. Not to say that you know there weren't other causes, but food seems to be our our number one priority, as it should be, and our ability to produce that food is is what grounds us to a specific area to to build our civilizations. So it's. It's interesting to me that that you know Johnny Appleseed was able to basically create society everywhere he walked. Like as he as he crossed you know through the West, he was basically creating new civilizations um, everywhere he went because he was creating new farmland. He was he was creating new settlements, and so that that, that just kind of you know when you said that, I was I was kind of um, intrigued by that because we we often see Johnny Appleseed as this like you know this great American. Um, I'm not sure that that myth is the right word. Maybe like legend is kind of more of an accurate, uh, you know, way to put it. But because obviously he was a real guy, but people tend to think of him as like, you know, Johnny Appleseed. He's like the true American. He's you know, he's he's the founder of 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 American ideals and all this kind of stuff. And so it's it's ironic that he was literally the founder of a lot of different American uh, civilizations because of his ability to to cultivate land and to attract settlers westward. Um, just, you know, as, as you mentioned, off of the comfort level of, of them knowing that there's, there's cultivated land there for them. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, not only that, but he was on good terms with the natives and I, I was reading my, my paper and I just referred to them as Indians. And I'm like, <laughs> well, this, this was written a few years ago. Come yeah, on, Matt. Should, uh, the, the native Americans mm. Because he not only was he educated in the ways of apples, but all sort of medicinal plants that he would also plant along the way. He knew all these these prairie treatments, and he actually went around warning people of the uh, the War of eighteen twelve, mm. I believe, saying that something you you need to get your family out of here because because uh, things are gonna get hairy around here. He was sort of a not quite. Uh, what's the guy? I sh- I should know this. I'm in the wrong mindset, though. Uh, the British are coming. Oh, Paul Revere. Yes, <laughs> he was a bit of a Paul Revere, saying, "There's a skirmish coming. You guys need to get out of oh. here." Uh, so he, he, yeah, his actual deeds, I think, only amplify the picture, uh, the mythic picture that we have mm-hmm. of him, and it was kind of funny a few funny times when i was working on this or presenting this my advisor uh she said my children she immigrated from china and was teaching at my university and she said i was just reading a book about johnny appleseed to my children and then i got to say my 
student is actually doing a project on him. And she actually didn't have any idea that he was a real guy. She thought it was just, you know, this character from her from a kid's storybook, like Paul Bunyan mm. or whatnot. And I remember talking to some students from England at this conference and they said, oh, we don't we don't have any idea who this is and trying to to sort of label what he actually is, the closest I could come to was was something like a Robin Hood character for mm. them. Someone who's you've heard stories about your whole life who did good deeds, but no one actually knows all of the whole the whole story mm-hmm. there. And I was glad to be able to sort of shine more light on the whole story. Yeah, no, that's incredibly interesting that, you know, it's, it's almost like, uh, you know, I think we've learned over time there's a lot of pieces of our history that we still don't know much about and that we're constantly trying to learn more and more about. And so it's always cool to find somebody that's just like, hey, you know, I happen to be an expert in, you know, this person that nobody ever heard of, you know. Uh, there's there's a um, there's actually mm-hmm. a a Mexican Robin Hood, um, Joaquin Marietta, who was seen as a bandit way back in the day in California. And uh, there's there's an old uh, cowboy song about him that I thought was incredibly interesting. And so it's like, you know, when you hear those stories, it reminds you of of how much or how actually how little we know about our our history as a country. You know how how there are so many important individuals that we either chalk up to being legends or myths or that we completely forget existed at all and so it, it's mm-hmm. interesting to me that you're able to kind of you know shed some light on on this kind of stuff so what kind of reactions were you getting you know if you're talking to these these kids and these teachers about johnny appleseed what, what how are they reacting to that a lot of them were surprised for one that that he was a real mm-hmm. guy and secondarily that he did do pretty much again like he did what we thought he did, what we've heard he did, which is plant mm. apple trees. Now, by and large, the trees he were planting weren't apples that you're going to go pull off the, the branch and bite into because, as he said, a lot of these he was taking from mm. cider mills. And if you're if you're pressing apples into cider, they're not going to be the tastiest apples. No. They're the bitter ones, the mm-hmm. sour ones. And you're going to ferment them, and it's going to taste good because it's alcohol. Mm-hmm. That or they're going to get... <clears throat> over sugared and turned into apple pie or preserves they're not what you'd find at your grocery store in most cases anyway mm-hmm. i can't verify in every case what he did but yeah the, the surprise was that they'd be surprised that he actually did it surprised that he lived as long as he did and <clears throat> mostly surprised with the whole land buying thing they thought oh he's just some some kind of bumpkin guy out there wearing the the tin pot on his head, right? I said, well, there's stories that he did do that, and then he kept a Bible under his belt because he was very religious. Hmm. But he was also a businessman who was buying up land, selling land, and there, there are actual records, printed records, handwritten records, that have his name on them selling 150 apple trees to to so-and-so on this side of of that river wow and just to have you know that tangible proof that this you know folklore legend actually did these things it's stunning in some ways yeah no definitely um 
So I was uh, I was thinking about that, and like you mentioned, how uh, you know people tend to think you know they think of him in terms of the mythology around him, you know, him wearing a pot on his head or him having a Bible under his belt or that kind of thing. Why do you think that some of these characters uh, get uh, almost almost like treated as as if they're cartoon characters instead of historical figures? So like exa- uh, for example, I think of George Washington, the story about him cutting down the uh, the ter- the cherry tree, which is is has been confirmed to be a myth. Right. Um, how, why do you think those those types of things get get fed to us when we're young and we automatically believe them to be true, and then that creates a false understanding of of what actually happened in in you know those old days? Well, I think part of it is the way that history is recorded. Mm-hmm. How they'll always say that history is is recorded by the victors or written by the victors, mm-hmm. and in some cases that's that's why we know what we know or that's how why it, what we're telling is being told the way it's being told uh, i had a a lovely class called historiography so it's analyzing the way history is written and yeah you get you get different viewpoints depending on who's writing the story i mean we know that uh i don't know if it's still true i, I haven't looked into it that much but about schools in the south using textbooks that refer to the Civil War as the War of Northern mm. Aggression. And everything that we're being told is going to be filtered through whoever originally recorded mm. it. So in a lot of these, a lot of the things that I went through, I was dealing with prairie journals because people living on the prairie back then didn't have much to do except yeah, enjoy the fresh air and, and write. Or there were a few newspaper references to Mr. John Chapman stopping through town which I thought, okay, these are a bit less biased than you mm-hmm. might get in in someone else's account. And I think part of it might just be that you like to tell the good story. The good story as in we're the good guys, and also the good story as in that's that's a very exciting story and one that a kid is going to latch onto and easily remember. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely true. And there's a certain aspect of in order to make history interesting and worth listening to, there has to be a storytelling aspect to it um, as a society. And just in, and just in general, as humans, we've, we've adapted to uh, learning through storytelling and, and learning how to teach through storytelling. Um, that's why, you know, in many ways we learn by association. We have to be able to associate something uh, conceptual into something we, we can articulate and, and realistically apply in order for us to understand it. And so, that would make sense, you know, for, for kids to be able to understand this kind of stuff. We teach it as a story, and that's why it kind of gets lost in translation as, oh, it's just a story versus, no, this actually happened. Um, so in, in terms of that, you know, this is a little bit of a tangent, but in terms of that structure of education, do you think that uh, we're, we're taking the wrong approach? Like, do you think more people need to know about Johnny Appleseed and, and how much he did? I don't think it would hurt. Uh, I, I know I'm biased <laughs> at this point uh, with all the research that I've done. And I, mean, I even just talking about it now, I can hear my cadence getting faster and faster <laughs> because I don't know, I've, I've got it in my mm. heart now for as much work as I put into it. Uh, but I, I think so. Even just to say he bought and sold land, that's one sentence that could be added to his his little byline and that makes people that much more interested so they'll look him up a bit more or want to learn a bit more 
That, that would make sense. I mean, I think that, you know, I think that there's a certain aspect of the storytelling that needs to be there still. I mean, like, you know, we tell the stories of uh, Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea, but those stories are also, are also confirmed to be, you know, real historical events and kids are taught to understand that. So I think there's a certain level of, of you know, mixing that can be done. You know, you, we, we can have a hybrid of the storytelling elements that make a kid interested in the topic, but also make sure the kid understands that, you know, those are real things that, that really happened. And not only are they real things, they're incredibly important things. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's our history. That's our culture uh, being founded. And uh, maybe some of the more uh, philosophical topics that we talked about, like, you know, food and agriculture being the foundation of society is a little bit too heavy for, you know, nine year olds. But uh, I think there's a certain <laughs> I right. think there's a certain element of that's middle <laughs> yes, school. Yes, yes, no, exactly. <laughs> uh yeah you don't you don't start talking about plato until you're 12 years old that's right um but no i think that there's a certain level of of realism that needs to be associated with these stories to help these kids understand just you know where where their culture comes uh, comes from yeah and and the whole point of this show where the food comes exactly from too. why why is the apple pie so american we we didn't have the apple that goes in most apple pies when this country was founded mm this well when the apple that you know isn't native to to north america we just had crab apples of varying varieties and and bitternesses Mm. until europeans traveled to the Mm. new world so the apple we know and love came from asia Mm. and it was cultivated everyone loved it it went to europe everyone loved it and it made the trip over here so just knowing that, wow, an American apple pie, isn't that American? <laughs> Maybe not, but we sure love it. We're not going to love it any less just because it didn't originate here, just like right. pizza. Yeah, I mean, half of our American food does not originate from America. I mean, you know, like you mentioned, pizza, um, there, there's a lot of food that we consider American food. I mean, we even consider Chinese food American food at this point. Um, <laughs> like, yeah. there's just, you know the the new american standard is is being a a mixture of cultures you know american is is almost uh it, it almost can't be its own culture because it has to be a mixture of cultures for it to exist so it doesn't doesn't surprise me at all that many of our our of our popularly cultivated uh, crops come from other countries i mean half of our domesticated animals came from other countries as well we didn't have you know cattle and horses in, in the united states like we do now um, mm-hmm. until you know settlers brought them over Yeah, yeah, so we're we're building bridges here, yeah. I think, in people's minds. Yeah, I like to think so. So I do have a couple questions for you. Um, you know, if if yeah. you're you know uh, if you're if you're complete with your explanation of your thesis, uh, I I have some numbers that I could get okay. into. Uh, we can do it either as... way. If you want to go through the numbers first, and I can ask you questions later, or if you want to do the questions first questions are on your mind let's okay. go with them um so you actually a couple of these might be related to the numbers in your um in your studies uh so first of all the uh mm-hmm. how much of his land is still left Ooh, that i don't when he died i know he had 1200 acres still in his mm. name uh, as i was refreshing my my memory today as far as the apple trees go Back the research I did when I was originally doing the project, there were, it, it seemed like a couple of areas where some of the descendants of the trees are still there. And, and yeah, I, that, it gets a bit tough to follow because 
apple trees reach maturation within 10 mm. years. And and as I said, he didn't like to graft his trees, so his trees were just going to remain you know, intact and whole. So I don't have great, great depth of detail on that. Okay. Yeah, and I, I wasn't sure, you know, if there was any kind of records on that kind of stuff. I know that, you know, that was, obviously that was over 200 years ago, so it's a little bit um, difficult to have records on that kind of stuff. But I was just curious if there was any kind of recollection of, like, you know, these are all the people who bought land from him. You know, these are all of their descendants, and, and that land is still in use today. I, mm-hmm. Like, I'd be curious to see how much of his land that, that he cultivated himself, even if it's not in his name anymore, is still in use for agricultural production, even if it's not for apple trees or if, you know, if it's not what the original crop was. Right, um, right. But, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I was reading something today that said there were some descendants of his trees. He didn't have any children, but descendants of his trees up in Maine. And I thought, I I know for sure that in my research I never saw anything up in Maine. Mm. Uh, what I would do is go through various sources, and any time I found a certain location mentioned twice, I decided, okay, that's that's good enough for me to say that probably was a place he planted mm. something. Uh, and in some of the books, it does list all of the all the sales that they have on record, the the land that he sold and who it was sold to, and. Actually, it it probably wouldn't be too, too difficult to then follow the chain of title, the ownership of that land to figure out who is in possession of it today. That's actually kind of related to, to what I do for my real mm. job, uh, working in, a, in an assessor's office and dealing with property parcels and all of that. So now my gears are turning <laughs> in that direction. It, it's probably deducible mm. to, to figure out who owns it and what's on it. Mm. And actually, what what's on it, as long as I dig up my, my old GIS shape files, I should be able to drop the points back on a map and and figure out what's there. Hmm. But at the moment, I don't have it on hand. Interesting. So you actually answered another question I had, which you said that, that he doesn't have any descendants himself. He never had kids or anything like that. Did not. That was, I believe, part of his devoutness and... I'm sure it also could be tied to his eccentricities mm. and his forever walking and wandering mm. ways. I don't want to make assumptions, but I can't imagine you're going to meet too many people <laughs> just walking and walking and walking. Or even if you do, they may think, well, you're you're a little funny right, guy. Yeah. And even if I think you're cute, I, I'm not going to be walking all those miles after yeah, you. Yeah, girls don't tend to go for the homeless guy that lives in the trees. <laughs> right exactly yeah no that, that makes sense i was curious to see if, if there was anyone who you know was from his lineage that could you know possibly attest to you know some of the historical stuff about him um but it seems that his his bloodline is, is kind of lost in history at this point yeah unfortunately Dang. so so um in in terms of you mentioned that his that his apple trees have descendants though so are there um you might have already said this, maybe I missed it, but there are there trees or at least like seeds or, or you know, specimen of, of apples uh, today that are directly related to the original trees that he grew? I do believe so, mm. yes. Uh, and just looking again today, I think I saw something about someone having some seeds somewhere. And in my original research, I remember that there was a tree somewhere, I believe, in Indiana. Mm. 
that that was one of the or believed to be one of the originals. Wow. And Indiana was where Indiana and Ohio, at least in my research, was where he spent most of his time. In total, I think I I approximated about sixty different areas uh, of his orchards, nurseries, plantings, whatever you want to call them. Uh, it reading today, somebody some some website said they're not orchards because he put fences around the trees to protect them from animals, so they're nurseries. Well, that distinction is kind of meaningless <laughs> to me, and I assume most people. Yeah. No, I would say so. But yeah, I, I I found 60 or so, and by and large, Ohio and Indiana were where he spent the most time. So I I wouldn't put it past history or anyone saying that that one of them is still out there. Hmm. Wow, yeah, no, that'd be that'd be really cool. You know, just you get to see a tree that that was that was actually related to one of the trees that the, the Johnny Appleseed planted. I think that'd be kind of like they should put that in a museum somewhere. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so, um, I have I have kind of three questions that are connected to each other about about your interaction with this whole thing, but we can get to those um, after your numbers because I'm kind of curious about what you have up up there. All right. So, what really made this project uh, feasible, or at least a whole lot easier than it otherwise would have been, was the National Historic GIS association this website i believe it was based out of the university of minnesota that generated all of these historical shape files and shape files just means layers that i can turn on and off on a map and analyze and manipulate so on and so forth mm. and in this case it was boundaries of the u.s states and counties uh, historical ones so it at that period of time the maps were changing constantly. And if I'd had to go and, and try and digitize these myself, trace them myself, it would have been a whole whole world of work. But they had these historical shapes of the counties decade by decade by decade. So I got uh, snapshots of what the counties and states looked like as of 1790, 1800, 1810, uh, all through, well, current period but my study only went up to 1850 and what they additionally had was census files related to those states and counties that I could then tie together of the same I mean, the census is every 10 years so it was a perfect match of data sets that I could then plop my orchard points on top of and and sort of color coordinate where is the where's the population growing higher year after year and as I said earlier maturation for an apple tree is about 10 years after planting so i started looking at the counties where he where he planted apple trees and looked at his population growth 10 years later and 20 years later to see what sort of effect there was on on the population size and i fully well admit that there are obviously other factors and both in science and in history to actually prove something without a doubt is incredibly impossible and is almost never going to happen. So the land being free for the soldiers could lead to population growth. The expanse uh, and, and implementation of railroads could lead to population growth. But all I'm looking for is a correlation. And a correlation, I believe, I did find. Interesting. And the biggest, 
uh, I, I put together a few charts, but the biggest indicator that my theory is correct was the percent growth. So let me just pull it up. Percent growth would be, there's a formula for it, which it isn't going to make sense to, to many people, but the number of the population at 0.2 minus the number at 0.1. So let's say the population in Macomb County in 1820 minus the population in 1810 divided by the population in 1810 and times 100. That gives you a percent change, how much it changed in those 10 years. Hmm. And I compared counties with orchards and counties just in general. So the counties with orchards in 1790 to 1800, those grew by 18%. Mm. All counties, 1790 to 1800, minus 0.37%. Huh. 1810 to 1820, counties with orchards grew by 44%. All counties, 0.96%. 1820 to 1830, the counties with orchards grew by 72.5%. All counties grew by 2.43%. 1830 to 40, counties with orchards grew by 54%. All counties grew by 3%. 1840 to 1850, those with orchards grew by 37%. All counties grew by 7%. So at least in this, you know, Excel-based statistical analysis, the counties with the orchards had overwhelmingly higher growth rates than those without orchards. And it could just be, sure, people didn't want to go to a place no one had mm. been. And if Johnny didn't go there, maybe there was a reason he didn't go there. Or it could be that he's traveling by rivers and humans are naturally going to want to settle by rivers. But he had to know that too. And in any case, the statistical, the statistical impression is there. I won't say proof, but the impression that his presence affected population growth is there in the numbers. Yeah, that's, that's incredibly interesting that he was able to almost just, I mean, it's, it's like we are talking about earlier, he basically just created civilization everywhere he went. I mean, as as he walked, people followed. It, it was kind of, uh, that's, that's kind of amazing. Do you think that that, so obviously you mentioned that there are other factors involved that, that could potentially be the cause of, of that massive population uh, spike. Do you think that mm -hmm. the... Uh, those, you know, do you think that some of those reasons are more related around the aspects of, of the environment in that, in those areas or more based around the idea that he was actually cultivating the land there and that, that made people comfortable in, in terms of wanting to move there? Like, do you think uh, he picked better land or do you think mean, that he made the land worth going to? That, I mean, that's a, you've, you've worded a good question. <laughs> And I would hazard to say that, that he made the land worth mm. going to, or at least more worth going mm. to. If you've got a nice plot of land, the soil looks fertile, but there's nothing on it, and you've got a comparable plot of land, and something is already growing on mm. it. Something, whether it's, it's flourishing or not, it's been proven that something will take mm. here. I'd say you're going to lean towards the land where you already see something Something will take root, something will grow, mm -hmm. something can sustain. Yeah, no, it definitely makes sense. I, w I would have to, I mean, 
obviously I haven't done the research, but I would have to agree just from a logic perspective that does tend to make uh, more sense. You know, people tend to go towards settlements in which they know that things are going to grow. They know that they have a sustainable form of, 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 you know, uh, food and, and just work and, you know, and, and, and a way to sustain themselves and their families other than, you know, rather than, than go somewhere where they don't know where things are going to work, but there's nobody there. And not to mention they, you know, we, we're, we're herd animals at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're pack animals. And so it's, it makes more sense, you know, maybe mm-hmm. somebody went there and said, hey, there's apple orchards here. I want to, I want to settle my house here. And then other people are like, hey, there's somebody living here. And they all just kind of bunched up together and went there instead. Right. Yeah. Their safety numbers, especially in the early American mm-hmm. West, where you never know what threat could be exactly. around the corner. So did you have any more, uh, any more numbers or anything else on your, on your thesis you wanted to go over? I think that's uh, the numbers I gave were the strongest mm. of the numbers. Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting and stuff. Let's see. It is. I, I did find some research. Some sources said that he also constructed cabins from time to time, some that he would use, some that he would sell. Mm. And if he's selling land, I, I wouldn't put that past him either to, to just take his business to a whole new level. Mm-hmm. But obviously there's not... A, there's a reason we're not referring to him as Johnny Cabin Seed, Johnny <laughs> right. Cabin Builder, or whatever. Right. Uh, the apples were the main thing. Interesting. Yeah, no, that he definitely sounds like a you know a true Renaissance man just out there just doing it all. He's a farmer. He's a construction worker. He's a a businessman. It's kind of incredible. And very much spreading the word of of the Swedenborgian religion. <laughs> Right. Uh, I guess that's not one that that picked up as well as the apple seeds, but <laughs> yeah, he's he's uh, whatever. He's not that... Johnny Preacher man, right? That's that's funny. Um, yeah, so that's so that kind of dives into another question that I have, which is more or less a kind of a fun question. Just you know, uh, if you had the opportunity, you know, let's say that that you had a time machine or something, if you had the opportunity to talk to Johnny Appleseed, what would be something you'd want to ask him, or what's something you're curious about learning more about him? Man, I guess it would probably have something to do with the endurance. <laughs> All of the miles he walked, he traveled. I remember at one point he was said to have traveled from Iowa all the way back to Pennsylvania in the matter of uh, of a few wow. weeks walking. And and this was, you know, in his more advanced age and they were like he was I don't know if this was when he was trying to get back for a church conference, because hmm. uh, again, very religious hmm. guy, and maybe it was the power of God compelling him to just hoof it through the undergrowth and get hmm. there. But what what he was doing to to have that relentless spirit to just keep going, keep walking, and maybe more so, how he was able to live so so scarce. Yeah. He, I mean, he's depicted in ragged clothes with the, the, the pot on his head for a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not the pot was ever really there, the ragged clothes. He is described as eccentric and and dirty and and all, but friendly. So how he got by on just that, and maybe it would lead right back into the good book, mm-hmm. my friend. Uh, why don't you take yep. a look? Maybe it was just his devoutness, because there are some stories where. He was so friendly with animals that when he saw mosquitoes dive bombing into his fire, he put out the fire because he didn't want to destroy any of God's creatures. Wow. 
he was said to be that that caring and loving about all living things, which again is why he didn't like to to cut branches and graft trees. He just did it from from roots and seeds. He was one of the first organic farmers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, do you are there any records on? what he was like in terms of, you know, both, both physically, you know, I'm assuming he's kind of a bigger guy. Um, but also in terms of personality, you know, was he kind of like, you know, obviously you talked about, he's a very devout religious man. So that, that, you know, kind of already paints a picture, you know, he's very, uh, very sympathetic towards, mm-hmm. towards living beings. And he's, you know, he's very, uh, kind soul, but he's also a businessman at the end of the day. So it was like, were there any journals or writings or anything like that about, you know, how he talked or, or how he acted or, you know, th- things that he said, Uh, I, I reread my whole paper today and I know that there's stuff that I did not put in it that were a bit more, you know, story-esque. And I don't have anything on what he said, but there are various uh, depictions of him in drawings and he's usually just sort of a tall, slender hmm. man. But I do know that he had to be at least somewhat... I wouldn't say anyone was out of shape back mm-hmm. in those days, but... He worked as an apprentice in an orchard and and at a cidery. After that, he built boats in Pittsburgh, and he actually left from there. That's he loaded two canoe, strapped two canoes together, loaded with seeds and saplings, and set out, set off down the river, and that's you know where his story begins. And built cabins. So I'm guessing he he was probably fit, mm. especially if he lived to seventy and was hoofing it all over the place. And I've used the word eccentric a few times hmm. here describing him because I do recall that's that's kind of how he was described, hmm. whether it was due to his religion or just that, you know, people are establishing communities here, there, and everywhere. Mm-hmm. And here's this guy who just sort of walks through town barefoot. <laughs> and so he, he was kind of eccentric because people are trying to live comfortably and he's not. He's making the choice to to live uncomfortably maybe he's comfortable in his own mind but to everyone else's point of view he's kind of mm. different but that's not to say they they didn't get along with him there were a couple of books i think that said he would talk to children and say when you're done with your apples go go throw the cores outside or save the cores and i'll come collect the seeds because he, he liked to to get along with people and if they said oh you should come into our house he would say no no i'm dirty i'm going to sleep you know in your barn hmm. because i don't want to invite my my here are the medicinal herbs that you might need but no i'll sleep outside huh. interesting because he yeah he didn't want to bring that part of i guess not not that he was ashamed or anything he was just especially right, humble. Is that a courtesy interesting so yeah, I mean, he sounds like a pretty stand-up guy. I mean, like he's the kind of guy you want to meet, but a little bit of a strange homeless man. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's 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 incredibly interesting. So, it, was there anything else in your in your thesis that you wanted to go over in particular? Any other interesting facts? Any other numbers? Uh, let's see. I'll do a quick scan here and, and see if any words pop out at me. Yeah, I know in California we have, I, I cannot remember for the life of me what it's called now. We have an organization that is doing similar things to what you're doing. We're, we're trying to find 
um, historical sites of of ancient apple trees in California. I I don't know what the organization is called mm-hmm. now, but I actually talked to to a gal that's part of it, and she because uh, she raises apples up in uh, up in the hills here, and she's you know extremely intelligent on that kind of stuff. Like she knows, you know, they they have an entire it's called I think it's called like a legacy uh, orchard or something like that. They have they have an orchard entirely okay. dedicated to uh, ancient trees that you know that were uh they were from like the early days of california and stuff it's really really interesting stuff i, I don't know why apples are wow. so historical but they are everywhere yeah it's something not related to my project at all actually uh i was just on a different podcast somewhat recently just talking about apples because uh rolling into fall it's it's on everyone's mm-hmm. mind going to the the orchard and getting some fresh crisp mm-hmm. apples but that every every apple you have is in some way a clone because nowadays all apples are sort of grafted the way that Johnny Appleseed didn't want to do it is the way that they're all done today because otherwise you don't know what you're going to get the way the apples cross pollinate Mm. if I'm remembering correctly that it's kind of a a genetic mystery uh, or kind of a a lucky chance game you're not sure what you're going to get when when two apple trees naturally breed Mm. with each other that whether it'll produce good fruit or or something disgusting. So most apples today are just graft a branch off, cut a branch off, graft it on another tree, and you're going to get that same good apple. So that's that's uh, really cool to hear that they're they're growing these sort of historical ones that are lost, because a lot of varieties of apples do just sort of fade out, whether or not it's because people just didn't like them they weren't as useful because hmm. i mean we know this even even in the apples we get from the grocery store that not every apple tastes the same feels the same hmm. is used for the same purpose so with changing trends over the years and and changing you know weather patterns growth patterns things could die out whether due to due to our choice or just it, it stops growing and you can't get it back so uh, i i don't know if it's reassuring or hopeful that that they're doing something like that to sort of preserve the history of the trees, uh, that way we don't lose what sort of, I don't know, was there. It's important to have history in all aspects of life and food. I think it needs to, needs to be thought of more when we think about history. Yes, definitely. And that's, that's a big thing that I talk about a lot on, on this podcast is that you know, as as much as, as history is important, and I'm a big history nerd, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love history. A lot of important aspects of history are, are centered around agricultural endeavors that are often overlooked. I mean, uh, just in, in, in United States history, uh, we had like the cotton gin was revolutionary for industrialization in the United States. People, t- people forget what the cotton gin even does. Um, you have the you have like oh. Shays Rebellion, which was a huge thing in terms of, of you know learning about governmental power and control. There's there's so many aspects of agriculture that are important to history, and some of them aren't agriculture themselves. Like Shays Rebellion, yes, they were farmers, but it wasn't the fact that they were farmers that made their rebellion important. Um, but you know we, we have agriculture is so closely tied with history in so many different ways, and not just agriculture, but just the you know earth in general, the environment. Um, you know, the, like, like the stuff that you study, all, all the geographical, uh, geographical, that's not the word geographic, uh, you know, research that's being done right now is, is finding stuff that is incredibly relevant to history that is just 
forgotten in in the in the stories about wars and and great presidents which i mean don't get me wrong that stuff's important too and it's all really interesting to learn about but there's so much about our relationship with you know with with food and our relationship with the earth and and agriculture and all those things involved that that make our history what it is yeah, uh, I don't know why it took me so long to remember this, but I also did a project, just an essay, on Cyrus McCormick, the inventor of the Reaper, oh. which revolutionized uh, the ability, revolutionized agriculture, at least out here in the West. We've got a convention center named after the guy, so <laughs> wow. So he must have been a big yeah. deal, right? No, for sure. But I'm guessing most visitors to to the McCormick Center in wonderful Chicago, Illinois, don't know that it's named after a guy who who helped spur on a, sort of an agricultural revolution yeah no a lot of people don't realize how you know and like, like we mentioned earlier how much technology is involved in agriculture today they don't realize how much agriculture has evolved over the years and how many people were responsible for that that maybe they did other things in history that they're remembered for but they're not remembered for in innovating new things that were that enabled us to have food that was safer, healthier, better for us, all this kind of stuff, and more readily available. So it's it's kind of it's it's interesting. It's, it's sad to me, you know, as somebody who advocates for agriculture. Often, it's sad that agriculture and you know the environmental aspects of of the conversation get kind of left out. But I, I understand why it happens, and you know that kind of stuff isn't always as interesting. But it is definitely just as, if not more, important. Yeah, I think it's probably, you know, out of sight, out mm -hmm. of mind. Our culture is kind of, uh, you don't have to think about something that's just right. there. It's just there. Yeah. It's, I, I don't know whether it's directly uh, sort of comparable to viewing meat as mm -hmm. only meat and not as an animal that had to be raised and shipped and, and processed. But I, I think it's kind of the same thing. Oh, it's just there. It's called beef. It's not... It's not cattle. It's not a cow. It's, it's just mm -hmm. there. No, it's not just there. A whole lot has to happen for it to get just right. there. No, exactly. And that's a big part of the conversation that gets left out a lot is that, you know, your food doesn't just show up in the grocery store. You don't just, you know, like they don't run out of milk and just go get more milk in the back. Like they, there's an entire process to getting that food to where it is. And there's an insane amount of work and, you know, regulation and technology and inspection and, you know, uh, all, all of this red tape that's around getting that food to where it in, to where it ends up, not to mention, you know, the actual practice parts of it, like you mentioned with beef, you know, there's an insane amount of work that goes into raising those cattle properly and making sure that they're healthy and making sure they're taken care of and all of those things. And if, you know, if that process fails, then we don't have food and, you know, the, the whole you know the, the whole purpose behind the podcast and the whole purpose behind talking to people about this kind of stuff is that if they don't realize that and they're voting on things and they're making purchasing decisions and they're making you know uh, personal decisions to like to boycott certain farms or whatever they're hurting more than just that one farmer they're hurting our entire food supply because there's so many different things that rely on each other to work properly for our food to to be readily available and, and affordable and, and healthy and all that kind of stuff people don't realize the how the process works and because of that they tend to hurt more of it than they tend to help when they think that they're trying to help out some cause hmm. wow that's a that's a powerful <laughs> point but i actually think you you talked about a gallon of milk they don't just go and get another mm -hmm. one and back and that actually reminded me of a an essay and project i did in high school all about milk and uh cow's milk versus all the the other things that are being produced these days that we call milk 
and and everything involved with that, whether or not we should be drinking milk or not as humans, yeah. what goes into it, the no, pasteurization, exactly. there's a lot of, how it's different, um, like in China versus the United States. That's for another episode. <laughs> no, there's there. I I could go on forever. Milk is a topic that's infinitely discussable, in my opinion. Um, no, we we could we, we might definitely have to do a uh, a follow up, you know, to talk about all of those other things. Yeah. But um, no, for sure, I think that you know, kind of wrapping back up towards the uh, towards the apple, you know, the topic of discussion. Um, you know, just because we're getting kind of kind of long in this episode here, and I don't want to keep you for too much longer because I know I'm sure you're you're busy as well. Um. But I, I did have a, a few more questions, just, you know, like I said, kind of more personally connected, you know, how you connect to this project. Um, so how has this project changed your life in terms of like, has, has it opened your eyes to anything that you weren't familiar with before? Has, you know, has it changed your, your mindset or your perspective on things? Like how, how is this project or how is this, you know, how has your involvement in this, you know, changed your experience with things? Honestly, uh, first and foremost, it's just that it changed my opinion of the guy, mm. that that he's a real guy. And not only, I'll repeat it again, did he do what we think he did? He did so much more. And the cunning that was there to, to buy the land, to sell the land, to make it a business of growing these orchards. But beyond that, it's just... I won't say it was indulgent research, but for everyone doing a project on the, the rusty crayfish in, in my year of college or doing a project on, on smog in the atmosphere, I got to say that I studied Johnny Appleseed and his orchards. And to be able to, to research something like this, it was, it was just a joy. When you can find joy in, in your work, in your research, in anything like that, uh, it's liberating. Like I said, for for the guy himself walking out there doing what he loved, this was was a labor of love, and it was great to feel that in college. I think for as much work as it was, and I know not every college or university requires students to do senior theses, but maybe they should, as long as they let you pick what you're going to do. Because when you can pick what you're going to pour yourself into, it's the results speak for themselves. And I I had fantasies about, you know, maybe writing a book about this. And now as I've gotten into other things, I'm thinking, well, maybe maybe a play <laughs> or a series of, of nonfiction, not nonfiction, but fictional mm. books. I read uh, Dean Kuntz's series, Frankenstein series recently after reading Mary Shelley's original mm. Frankenstein. And Dean Kuntz takes and puts Frankenstein in the modern day but it's the same Frankenstein monster from Mary Shelley's book. In in his universe, Mary Shelley's book was just propaganda, and the same monster has been walking the earth for 200 years. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool to have a story with Johnny Appleseed, and he's still out there. And so, in many ways, I guess I'm saying that it's just inspired me to, to do things uh, about the things that I find interesting. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm, you know, I, I definitely am on board with you with all of that. I think that in terms of, you know, addressing each of the points you made in terms of the, you know, having seniors in college write their theses, I 
personally be on board with that because I love writing papers like that. I mean, I've I've had two or three different <laughs> theories that I've I've been working on research papers for for the past couple of years that I haven't finished yet. Um, but it's just incredibly interesting stuff to me, and so I would definitely be on board with that. I'm not sure if it should be a requirement because not everyone is all you know intellectual and 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 you know research oriented like some people. But um, no, that that's. I suppose it depends on what you're studying. Right. Studying no, th- th- I think that's definitely not everything. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a good way of looking at it. Um, but no, I think it'd be really, really interesting to see, you know, to see more developments like like what you're talking about, more stories around Johnny Appleseed that kind of correct the correct the mythology. And you know, I, I'm I'm a big fan of of Mary you know, uh, of um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I I grew up, you know loving the the whole like frankenstein monsters idea and i actually read the book in high school and i was Mm -hmm. a big fan of it i thought it was a really really interesting book um it's actually one of my favorite uh like classic literature books for the longest time and it still it still is one of one of my favorites um so like you know to hear great yeah to hear people recreating that idea and and you know and putting it in a modern light is just really really you know fascinating stuff to me and i would love to see you know if, if you decided to go on and and you know produce fictional writing or or to you know produce a play or a movie or you know something kind of putting a a new modern spin on johnny appleseed that that tells his real story i think that'd be really really interesting to to see how that would turn out I, I I won't keep it a secret if it happens. <laughs> well, yeah, if if you end up going through with it, you're you're coming back for another episode so you can advertise it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so I I had one more very important question. That is is the most mm-hmm. important question of this entire episode. <laughs> oh boy. So, as as I'm sure you know, it, it's fairly obvious by now. You're a pretty big fan of Johnny Appleseed. Yeah. Do you eat apples every day in his honor? uh i don't gosh darn it i don't but i should i I mean maybe not every day but you know you gotta have an apple every now and then for your boy johnny oh boy oh there. okay Okay, i I think we might have cut out for a second did you hear what i said Yes, uh, and I said I don't, oh, okay. but I yeah, should. Yeah, no, I said you know you got you got to you got to have an apple. Maybe not every day, but you got to have an apple every now and then for for Johnny. Yeah, but bite into one for Johnny, everybody. Yeah. So, and, and actually, I just came up with this. You know, do you think if you were if you were living back in you know late seventeen hundreds or the eighteen hundreds, do you think that you could have lived like Johnny Appleseed did? No, I would have planted kiwi. <laughs> you would have planted kiwi. You would have been Matt kiwi uh, seed. Uh, well, yeah, kiwi <laughs> seed. <laughs> but seriously, no, I don't think so. I, I'd want at least a little more of that uh, 18th century, 19th century luxury mm-hmm. shoes, maybe. Call me crazy, but I like a good pair of yeah, shoes. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair request. Um, you know, maybe... Maybe a a permanent house. Yeah, I I, I guess throughout my childhood and still to this day, I enjoy walking barefoot, <laughs> but uh, showering and bathing. Yeah, those those might be are all might be nice. Good habits, <laughs> along with apple eating. Right, right. Things we although should do. to be fair, the man did live to be seventy back in an age where people died at fifty. So maybe maybe walking around barefoot yeah. and not showering is the way that you uh, live forever. <laughs> He had strong arches, I guess. <laughs> oh man. 
so yeah, those, those are all the questions I had. Um, I'm, I'm going to give you another opportunity to, to plug your podcast and kind of talk about anything else you want to plug or anything like that if you, if you would like to. Sure. Uh, if you forgot, my name's Matt. I am the co-host of ReviewParty.com. Not related to anything I talked about on this podcast at all, but if you enjoyed hearing my voice, check it out. It's available wherever you find your podcasts. We just look at user-submitted reviews from Amazon, Yelp, wherever, and find the craziness that, that exists in all of us that some people choose to post online. Oh, man. I, I'm... I still haven't gotten a chance to listen to it, but I'm very much looking forward to hearing how that turns out because it sounds very interesting to me. It can be a riot. <laughs> As someone who who enjoys looking through hilarious reviews, I'm sure it'd be very entertaining. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So thanks again. You know, thanks, Matt, for coming on and, and telling us all about Johnny Appleseed. It sure was a pleasure to have you on and, and learn about this uh, slightly different, very interesting topic nonetheless. Right. Uh, it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk about it, Brendan, and a pleasure to talk to you as well, and and just to, to listen to your podcast, even when it doesn't feature my own <laughs> my own little theories. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm always you know my door is always open. You're always happy. You're always welcome to come back and and you know ask more questions about agriculture or maybe just kind of. I mean, it seems like you have a fairly decent understanding of a lot of things I talk about. So I'd be happy to you know discuss more about you know the philosophies of agriculture or you know even more like his, uh, historical aspects of agriculture that don't get discussed as much or you know just kind of talk about the technology. I mean, I'm always up for any kind of conversation. So if you want to come back on, you just let me know and you've got yourself a spot. All right. It sounds like we've got a milk date. Nope. You cut out again. Yeah. Did you hear my milk date? No, I didn't. Sounds like we've got a milk date. (laughs) Oh, perfect. So, yeah. That's 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 all I got for this episode. So, yeah. Thanks again, Matt, for for joining me. Thanks to all my listeners for tuning in. And don't forget, if you ate today, thank a farmer. Mm -hmm.